You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power, and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February, 2021. This episode features a paper by Richard Hutchins from the University of Miami. His lecture, A Way of Seeing, Technicity and Prometheus Bound, was introduced by Chiara Blanco from University of Oxford. It is a great pleasure to introduce our first speaker today, Richard Hutchins. Richard is a visiting assistant professor in classics at the University of Miami. He received his PhD in classics and classical philosophy from Princeton University in 2019. His research focuses on ecological thought in Latin literature and in archaic Greek thought. His book project, Lucretius Against Human Exceptionalism, explores posthuman ideas in Lucretius's De Rerum Natura. Richard has published extensively about ecology and animals in Epicureanism and pre-Socratic philosophy, and is currently working on an article about the representation of animals as individuals in the epigrams of Aniti of Tegea. Today, he's presenting a paper entitled A Way of Seeing, Technicity in Prometheus Bound. So, Richard, the floor is yours. Okay. Uh, thank you, Chiara, and um, thank you, uh, Giacomo and Matthew, for accepting the paper. I'm happy to be here. Uh, this paper is called A Way of Seeing, Technicity, and Prometheus Bound. Um, so this paper focus on, focuses on technicity, or the technological way of seeing nature, in the Greek tragedy Prometheus Bound. Sometimes attributed to the playwright Aeschylus, there's been much debate about whether Aeschylus wrote it at all. But instead of entering into that debate, I'll be focusing on the part of the play that I think is most promising for discussions about the relationship between technology and what the ecologist Paul Shepard once called human ecology, that is the study of the human place in nature. I'll be arguing that what Prometheus gives early humans in the play is not technological things as much as a technological way of seeing nature that leads to the invention of techni and culture. I'll be suggesting that Prometheus, as a figure for technological sight, raises questions about whether some modern uh, technologically reductionist mindsets towards nature today might have genealogies that reach back to ancient Greece. Prometheus Bound presents a world a lot like Hesiod's Theogony, in which the cosmos is still new. Unlike the Theogony, however, Zeus in Prometheus Bound is a tyrant recently come to power an insecure ruler with a new manager complex who has shackled the older god, the Titan Prometheus, to a chasm at the edges of the earth. Humans are mentioned in the play, but they are weak and under threat of extinction. And so Prometheus gives them the technological site with which to build culture. This talk will be focusing on the central lines of the play, uh, lines 436 to 506, in which Prometheus gives two lengthy speeches about his gift of technology to humans. 
I'll argue that Prometheus gives not so much technological things as a technological way of seeing or technicity, which now that we live in a time of ecological collapse, mass extinction, and the Anthropocene, bears an uncanny resemblance to the kind of technologically reductive ways of viewing nature that are a large part of the problem. But in the play, Prometheus's technological way of seeing is celebrated since it moves proto-humans from the state of nature to culture. But while the play praises Prometheus as a culture hero and a sophist, as Richard Buxton and Susan Said, among others, have argued, I'll try to highlight the pitfalls of Promethean technicity for ecological thought now. There has long been a distinction in German ecological thought between technicity or technic and technology. While the distinction goes back to Heidegger's essay concerning technology in 1954, the most recent version can be found in Peter Schloterdijk's essay, The Domestication of Being, 2017. <laughs> technology, or what Schloterdijk calls homeotechnics, is a cooperative and sustainable way of interacting with the natural world. In a homeotechnic society, living beings and technology become partners for increasing mutual health. A gain for one is no loss for the other. For Sloterdijk, a homeotechnic relationship with the natural world advances on the principle of, quote, the non-violation of what is present, unquote, and succeeds only as, quote, non-ignorance vis-a-vis embodied information, unquote. In other words, a homeotechnic society would require reliable knowledge about the natural world and would work with the grain of nature rather than against it. Technicity, or technic, on the other hand, what Sloterdijk calls allotechnics, all the same thing, quote, carries out violent and counter-natural incisions into what is discovered, unquote. Allotechnics aim at ends that are indifferent or alien to the materials or living beings they use. In an allotechnic society, a gain for one is a loss for the other. And the world is seen as a struggle for dominance between us and them, friend and enemy, animal and human. Non-human animals and natural systems are thought of as alienated materials that can be disposed of in this competition. So in this paper, I'll use uh, Sloterdijk's allotechnics and the older term technicity interchangeably to describe more accurately, I think, what Prometheus gives early humans in Prometheus Bound. So Prometheus begins his speech on the origins of technology by protesting to the chorus that Zeus's punishment of him is shameful, since as Prometheus says, and this is passage one on the handout, so I'll scroll down here. Yeah. Um, Prometheus says, quote, after all, who else but I fully divided up the honors for these new gods? But I'm silent about that since I would be telling you what you already know. Instead, hear about the hardships of mortals, how infantile they were before I made them intelligent and masters of their own minds. I shall say this not out of blame towards humans, but to explain the kindness in the things I gave them." Unquote. Here, Prometheus is responding to the chorus of the daughters of ocean, who have just expressed sympathy for Prometheus and the whole race of the Titans for being dishonored by Zeus. The chorus has told Prometheus that the whole world, including human beings, Greek and non-Greek, mourn his punishment. 
As DJ Conacher has suggested, human, non-human, and even quasi-human beings in the play, like the chorus of the Daughters of Ocean, all mourn for Prometheus in an all-encompassing pathetic fallacy that actually becomes fact with the Daughters of Ocean. This expression of sympathy for the, from the chorus cues Prometheus to explain his bond, his peculiar bond, with human beings, thereby eliciting more sympathy for himself from the audience. Prometheus begins by recalling his former connection with the Olympian gods, alluding to how he used to advise Zeus, and he claims that he, quote unquote, divided up or distributed, the verb is diorison in line 441, honors to the Olympians. This mention of diorison is programmatic, I think, for Prometheus's relationship with humans. One aspect of his gift of technology, as I will argue in the passages that follow, is the way that technological sight allows humans to divide and distinguish things in the natural world by separating figure from background, dividing perception into discrete sense data that the mind correlates and reifying things. Prometheus's gift of technicity allows early humans to leave behind their former holistic embedded relationship with nature in favor of seeing things in their environment as a series of parts separated from their ecological interconnectedness by the technicity that Prometheus gives so that these things can be manipulated to build culture. Here, Prometheus describes how proto-humans lived with many hardships, hemata in 443, uh, and were infantile, nepius, before he showed them how to see their environment in a technological way. In line 445, Prometheus makes the important claim that his gift of technicity quote, made them intelligent, en nous, and masters of their own minds, pranon apebolos, unquote. The metaphor, metaphorical valence of this phrase, pranon um, epebolus, suggests that Prometheus's gift of technicity extends to how early humans saw their own minds, now as a property or instrument to manipulate for cultural ends. The idea, I think, is insightful, with the advent of technology, um, humans begin to think about their own minds also as a technology or tool to manipulate, uh, not unlike how with the rise of computers, I think one might wonder where our, whether our own minds are computers and thereby gain a new control or a sense of mastery over our own thoughts at the risk, of course, of dehumanizing ourselves. Prometheus here explains his gift of technological sight as noted by kindness or altruism, the word is aunoion in 447. But one might also suspect other reasons. For instance, that, his, that Prometheus's resistance to Zeus in the play involves a democratic alliance with weak humans, empowering them by his gift of technological vision. It is only after explaining this peculiar bond with human beings that Prometheus describes his gift of technicity in detail. And I think this is the most important passage from my talk. So this is passage two. Let's see. All right. Uh, so Prometheus says, in the beginning, seeing they saw in vain, listening they did not hear, but like shapes in dreams, over the length of their lives, they mixed up everything at random. They knew nothing of brick-built, sunlit houses, nor woodworking, but they dwelt underground like airy ants in sunless nooks of caves. 
They had no reliable indicator of winter, nor of flowering spring, nor of fruitful summer, but they did everything without discernment until I distinguished the hard to discern risings and settings of stars." Unquote. Here Prometheus, I think, lets us into the mind of early humans before he gave them technological sight. Their sight and hearing were, quote, in vain, matein in line 448. That is, th their perception had no aim or goal. They saw the natural world, quote, like shapes in dreams, unquote, as they, quote, mixed up everything at random, unquote. Mark Griffith, uh, in his commentary, interprets the phrase, like shapes in dreams, to suggest the ephemerality of early human life. I would like to also emphasize that Prometheus here is talking about early human perception. And I see the phrase as focalized from inside the early human mind. Prometheus is saying that prehistoric humans saw the world in a fully imminent embedded way, being immersed in the world, quote, like shapes in, dream, in a dream, unquote. The point I think is that after his gift of technological sight, early humans withdrew from the imminence of nature. Again and again in his speech, Prometheus repeats verbs like deiknumi to indicate or point out, diorizo to distinguish, distinguish or separate, and crino to judge or distinguish, to describe how he taught humans to see nature as parts abstracted from formerly interconnected wholes. Prometheus's point here is that in doing so, he has given the human sensoria an aim or goal. What he has given, I think, is essentially himself. Prometheus's name means forethought or foresight from the Greek pro, which means before, but also on behalf of, uh, and medomai, to devise, know, or perceive. As Marcel Detienne uh, has argued, Medomai is related to the Greek concept of metis or cunning intelligence, a highly valued form of intelligence in archaic Greece. And Carol Doherty adds that recent work in linguistics links the meth component of metomai or metis with the Sanskrit root math or to steal, connecting Prometheus's name not just with cunning intelligence, but also with older Indo-European myths of a divine fire stealer. So in this speech about technicity, uh, this speech about technicity, I think perfectly fits the character and name of Prometheus since his gift literally consists of the components in his name, making a speech essentially one long uh, figura etymologica. The point I wanna make is that Prometheus is essentially giving himself to human beings when he gives them technicity, since he is giving them the ability to foresee or foreknow into things in the natural world, their, use, their future use for culture. His gift of technological sight therefore transitions humans from an embedded relationship in nature to a productionist relationship with nature. As he says here in passage two, uh, quote, they knew nothing of brick built sunlit houses nor woodworking, unquote. Playing I think on the idea in the Greek word eison, they knew, um, the, the third person plural of oida, that to know in ancient Greek is really, really means to have seen. Early humans do not know how to build houses or mud or to do carpentry because they literally have not seen 
the natural things in their world as future resources for culture until Prometheus's gift of sight. Prometheus then extends this gift of technicity to seeing the stars in the passage as figures distinct from the background of the sky so that humans can tell time, saying that before this, humans, quote, had no reliable indicator, tekmar bebayon, of winter, unquote, until he, quote, distinguished the hard to discern, duscritus, risings and settings of stars, unquote. Before seeing the heavens in this way, humans, he said, did everything ater gnomes, without knowledge or without planning. So I've described Prometheus' Prometheus's gift of technicity in this passage as a gift of himself, a gift of foresight into nature that reduces it to a technological meaning or relation. While scholars such as Susan Said have detailed how Prometheus speaks in the idiom of the sophists in these passages, what needs to be emphasized is that um, the relationship of technological sight to nature implies another kind of separation, since it characterizes human knowledge of nature as something that keeps, keeps the natural world at arm's length, as the metaphor of knowledge as sight suggests. Knowledge of nature is grasped in this text from a theoretical distance that sets the human outside and above uh, the environment with natural things presented to proto-human understanding in a deeply anthropocentric way as a set of manipulable parts for human knowers to correlate. There is, of course, an important survivalist element in this story of Prometheus. Um, so this is passage three. Let's see here. Um, in, in this passage, Prometheus describes the creation of technai and porus means as something he devised or thought up, ma same, in line 477. Uh, for surviving prehistoric life. Here, Prometheus puns on his name, using the heiress Medomai in Eme Samen to link his gift of technicity directly to the creation of techne as a kind of foresight into natural things for their future use for culture. As he brings his speech to an end, Prometheus reiterates many of the same themes of technological sight. Once again, techne involves the anti-holistic separation of figure from ground, with the implication that the only meaningful knowledge of nature is a technological knowledge, and that humans are essentially technological knowers, rather than all the other things we might be and ways of relating to the natural world we might have. The vast range of contextual, experiential, pre-reflective and practical relationships to nature, as well as those ways of relating to nature based on emotions, moods, and feelings and perception that even in human beings can remain somewhat animal, and the kinds of relation to nature not totalizable into a set of elements, numbers, classifications, or data sets separated from the world by deictic reference, as Prometheus repeatedly does. Okay, so yeah, on to passage four. Let's see here. Right. Uh, here, Prometheus continues with his mind as data processor relationship to the natural world. So he says, I also reduced to the elements as stoikissa, many kinds of prophecy. And I was the first to distinguish ekrina in dreams, what when awake was destined to happen. And I indicated ignorissa to, to humans, hard to discern omens and encounters on journeys. I carefully distinguished diorissa, 
the flight of crooked-clawed birds, which of them were favorable by, favorable by nature and which sinister. I burnt the wrapped thigh bones and long chine in fat and led mortals into the techne of making difficult distinctions. And I opened their eyes, ex omatosa, uh, to the signs that flames give, which were formerly blinded by cataract. So in this paper, I've tried to emphasize that Prometheus gives not so much technological things in these passages as himself, a new mentality and a technological way of seeing nature. In passage five, I think he underlines this by concluding his speech with the imperative to quote, uh, to understand everything altogether in a word, all technologies mortals have come from Prometheus, unquote. While the point is that all technologies come from foresight and foreknowledge, there is also the implication that there is a unity to technology, I think. Not only because all technologies emerge from Prometheus's technological way of seeing, but also because as he tells the story, one form of technicity arises from another, suggesting I think that technicity or technological sight is the essence of technology and that technologies are ultimately connected to one another by Promethean vision. In arguing that what Prometheus gives humans in Prometheus bound is not so much technological things as technological sight, I don't mean to suggest that the answer to Prometheus is a return to immersion in nature, the kind that Prometheus pities human beings for at the beginning of his speech. It is entirely possible not to think of nature as a pristine whole, but as constant material change, mutation, deferral or difference in the identity of natural things in the way, for instance, you might think Lucretius or a Heraclitus does. Instead of this binary of holism or technicity, why not think that, quote, nature loves to hide, unquote, uh, as Heraclitus does, that in an important sense, phusis is what always escapes our grasp or human attempts at mastery, that nature might even be a better trickster than Prometheus himself. I see Prometheus's speech as setting up a narrow binary between a prehistoric human belonging to nature as a pristine whole and a technological relationship with nature that would push the eject button on our uh, um, connection to the natural world and launch us into a project of technicity that today sees the natural world almost exclusively in terms of resources for culture. So I think if there is something to learn from Prometheus's speeches, Perhaps it is that the future of human relationships to nature might want to avoid the pitfalls of this tragic Promethean double bind between an atavistic holism and a future of relentless technicity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, really fascinating talk, Richard. Thank you. My question for you, uh, Richard, was uh, um, how do you actually reconcile this uh, technological view of nature? Uh, that you uh, just discussed, with a character such as that of Ayo, who represents, strongly represents animality and frenzy as well, and who's uh, very strictly bound uh, to wilderness. So nature in that sense sort of represents precisely the other side <laughs> of what you just discussed uh, with Prometheus, right? So the wilderness and, uh, and lack of rationality that we witness uh, in, in Ayo's character? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So Ayo in the play, um, in case anybody hasn't read it recently, um, 
She shows up later in the play. She's a woman who's been, um, basically she's a victim of Zeus. So Zeus in this play is this sort of evil tyrant who's, um, yeah, essentially torturing both Prometheus and Io. So Kiara's question is, is very interesting because Prometheus and Io in some ways are very similar. They're victims of this tyrant Zeus. But on the other hand, as Kiara just said, they're very, very different because Prometheus, as I've been emphasizing, is Mr. Technology, Technicity, Culture, sort of progress. Uh, and Io is literally a woman who's become an animal and is forced to wander all over the world. Um, yeah, what to say about Io? I mean, one, well, and, and so just to actually finish up the description of, of what happens. Prometheus is sitting there essentially shackled uh, you know, to the doors of the, of the, of the you know, house building on the stage, the entire play. And one character after another sort of comes up and talks to Prometheus. He doesn't go anywhere. Um, and there's, so there's this sort of um, interesting aspect to the, to the tragedy where the audience is asking itself, how, how, are, how is each character gonna react to Prometheus's situation, his suffering? Io shows up towards the end of the play and essentially Prometheus, as I understand it, like tries to um, console her, console her for her suffering under Zeus. Um, but as Kara said, she's just kind of like, she can't really engage uh, with Prometheus because of her suffering. And I see the interaction between the two of them as, as essentially foregrounding the impossibility of sympathy uh, between two people when they're suffering too much. Esther and her animality, I mean, in the play, I guess the answer is this. I think Prometheus is still just sort of relentlessly sort of the, the figure of culture, the figure of technology and hope and those sort of things. Because one thing that he does for Io, he does try to console her by telling her a prophecy about her future, which is that she'll eventually wander as a, as a sort of cow, half cow of woman, she'll wander to Egypt and there Zeus will like touch her again and she'll turn back into a human, uh, but she'll give birth to a child named Epaphus, which means touch. And from Epaphus eventually in the family line will be born Heracles. Um, so he actually, in a way I think is still doing, playing his role by returning actually Io from nature back into, well, humanity at least, back into culture, yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. Can you, can you tell us something more about the kind of uh, way that technology was seen in antiquity? Was it always seen, at least in the ancient, in the Greek world especially, was always seen as something positive or there were instances in your opinion where this kind of technologies that Prometheus offered to humanity might have turned into something actually aggressive or negative. Thanks. Yeah, it's a good question. So certainly in the play, uh, it needs to be emphasized that Prometheus is a god. He's, a, you know, it's he's an example of philanthropy, a love of human beings. Um, technology is a great gift that's celebrated as moving humans from a ter you know a terrible state of uh, pre-cultural life. Uh, to a state of uh, culture. So he's a great sort of culture hero. Um, you know, the first thing I think of, um, 
Well, first of all, I have a suspicion that we will uh, encounter just among our panelists some examples of technology gone awry. I hope, I hope to see this. Uh, but also, um, the first thing that comes to mind just because I work on him is Lucretius, De Rerum Natura. And my mind goes, goes immediately to his um, descriptions in book five of De Rerum Natura, where he describes a similar sort of story, a culture story, uh, an anthropological history of humans leaving nature and entering into culture through various means. But um, there's some interesting passages in that book of, of Lucretius, book five, where he describes, for instance, humans uh, mining, uh, going under the earth, sort of digging up, uh, you know, terra mater, mother nature. And he describes them as doing it out of greed. They're motivated by greed, essentially, which is a very negative thing. But then also when they emerge from the earth, the, the miners themselves are sort of, they've basically, uh, um, they're like green, they, they've poisoned themselves, essentially. So he sees at least this kind of, uh, what Sloterdijk would call incision into nature as sort of having repercussions on at least the human beings themselves in the sense that Lucretius, Lucretius thinks that like nature can get its revenge on, on human uh, cultural activities or technological activities, I should say, not cultural activities only. So um, I'm reading the questions that we received so far. So Virginia asked precisely uh, some insight, uh, uh, this insightful discussion about uh, what we just uh, discussed with regard to the Prometheus bound and human progress in Lucretius. Uh, and then we have another uh, question uh, from George, uh, who says, as far as technology is concerned, what would you say in Ephesus, so Epic mostly role there? As in, in his technology, Talos, uh, Golden Dog and Lions, uh, robotic drones uh, helping out in a workshop, etc., strictly for divine use. So a much better version of what Prometheus offers to mankind, perhaps? Uh, yeah, okay. I just, I just learned how to look at the chat. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah, this, the second question, um, it's true that in, so in the beginning of the play, Prometheus Bound, Essentially what happens is you have two rather allegorical characters, Kratos, power, and Bia, violence, okay? And these are just like henchmen of Zeus and they're dragging Prometheus onto the stage to kind of chain him to the chasm at the end of the earth where he'll be, where he'll be tortured. But um, they need to uh, co-opt the help of Hephaestus and, and Hephaestus has a kind of interesting role there because unlike Kratos and Bia, who are just these sort of, you know, lackeys of Zeus, Hephaestus is um, what you might call a sort of um, reluctant collaborator with Zeus. So of course, Hephaestus on the one hand is an Olympian, but he seems to share a sort of affinity with Prometheus, maybe because Hephaestus, as the question suggests, is also a kind of god of technology, also because Hephaestus works in fire, um, I didn't talk a lot about fire in my talk, but of course everybody knows that what Prometheus is famous for is stealing fire uh, from Zeus and giving it to humans. Um, I should say the reason I didn't talk about that is because somewhat strangely, fire doesn't um, really come up in the speech in Prometheus Bound. Um, it's a major emphasis in the earlier version of the Prometheus myth in Hesiod's Theogony and Works and Days. 
um, but it's not it's not so emphasized in Prometheus Bound, probably because the Prometheus Bound is a very philosophical play. Um, I think probably the scholarly consensus is it's not written by Aeschylus; it's written by some sort of sophistic thinker. Um, uh, so, yeah, the role of Hephaestus. I mean, I think he's a sort of I don't know, brother from a different mother or something. He's he's uh, he's you know he likes he likes Prometheus, but they're not really from the same generation, and yet he has to do the the will of Zeus. So, yeah, that's that's primarily his role. I mean, there's an irony that one god of technology is enchaining another god of technology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. To access more podcasts from the workshop check out the Humanities Institute's podcast channels on Apple, SoundCloud, and on Spotify.